Almighty God, whose Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, is the light of the world, grant that Your people, illumined by Your Word and sacraments, may shine with the radiance of Christ's glory, that He may be known, worshipped, and obeyed to the ends of the earth through Jesus Christ our Lord, who with You and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, now and forever. Amen. You may be seated because I want to say a few words of introduction before we move into the sermon this morning. As I said in the announcements, the sermon this morning will be a little bit different from what we usually do. Uh, not uh, straight Bible exposition or exegesis as, usually, as usual. We are moving through a passage of Scripture. But this is the first in a series of sermons uh, that I'm calling Reformation 500 uh, because uh, this October 31st, October 31st, 2017, will mark the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, the Protestant Reformation was led by men like Martin Luther and John Calvin, and it really was a great recovery of the gospel. Uh, not every sermon that I preach in this series is going to be uh, a celebration of the Reformation. There are some things we'll need to lament about the Reformation as well. Uh, but certainly the Reformation as a whole is a great event and an epic in church history that we should be very grateful for. It was a great recovery of the gospel. It was uh, a reformation of liturgy and worship in the church, restoring the priesthood of the baptized. It was a recovery of family life and of the dignity of daily work as ways of serving God and advancing the kingdom of God. It was the reformation of church life and of the wider culture. Indeed, many of the great blessings we enjoy in the modern world flow out of the reformation. Uh, of course, the reformers did not start from scratch. Uh, the reformation did not come out of nowhere. Uh, the Reformers did not reject all previous church history. They did not reject tradition or the church fathers. Indeed, the Reformation, from one point of view, was largely a retrieval project, what you could call a resourcement movement, going back to the original sources of the New Testament and then the church fathers. Uh, in fact, I would say the Reformation can probably be best understood as a treasure's old, treasure's new kind of thing. It was a recovery of... Uh, great treasures from the past that had been lost combined with new treasures, stunning new insights of the Reformers that carried the church into the future. And the Reformation really did begin uh, a new era in church history. It marked a, a, a new era in, uh, in history. But that raises a question. How did the Reformers know what to keep and what to discard from the past? How do you know what to treasure and, 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 and what's a trinket that should be tossed out? Further, how did they justify their reforms and their new insights? Well, they did so by going to Scripture. Indeed, the slogan, sola scriptura, Scripture alone, became one of the great rallying cries of the Reformation. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. Sola scriptura. In fact, this, this one is so big, we're going to look at it today and it's going to carry over to next week as well. Uh, throughout the course of this year, as I said, I'm going to be preaching a number of sermons that commemorate the Reformation, as this is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Uh, but this is also going to be a way of looking ahead to future reforms, future reformations that God might grant to His church. And so these sermons are going to be on great reformational themes that hopefully will help us look back as well as looking ahead. 
And uh, I hope to do about one of these sermons a month between now and our Reformation Sunday celebration uh, at the end of October. Uh, but I want to read a couple more passages for you this morning, a couple more passages from the Bible about the Bible uh, to help us get started this morning. This is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. And then I also want to read 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verses 14-17. through 17. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our kinsman redeemer. Amen. Uh, in our liturgy, as you've just noticed, whenever we have a reading of Scripture, we follow up that reading of Scripture with responses. We just did it. The reader comes to the end of the passage and he says, the word of the Lord. And then you all as the congregation respond, thanks be to God. Now what is this? This is uh, certainly an exercise in liturgical manners, you could say. The liturgy is training us in how to be mannerly. Uh, in the presence of God, proper proper protocols uh, for uh, being in the presence of God. The liturgy is teaching us to say thank you to God. Thanksgiving, of course, is the proper response whenever you are given a gift. And one of the greatest gifts we have is the Word of God. And so it is right to receive each reading as a gift and to give God thanks in return. Because in giving you His Word, God is really giving you Himself. In giving you His Word, God is giving you life and truth and wisdom and salvation. God is giving you assurance. You may not like what the reading contained. It may be a, a piece of Scripture that cuts against your grain, that convicts you, that you're uncomfortable with. And yet, in the liturgy, you say, thanks be to God, because this is a Word you need to hear. It's a Word you need to know. It's God's Word for you. You know, there's that little children's song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That little song is not just a song of comfort for kids, it's also a profound piece of theology, even philosophy, you could say. Epistemology. Epistemology is just the big word for how we know what we know. It's the study of our knowledge. The Bible is the Word of God written. And God has given us His Word so that we may know Him, so we may know truth, so we may know His love. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Because the Bible comes from God, it is actually the foundation of everything we know. Everything we know about God and about ourselves and about the world starts with Scripture. The Bible is God's book for God's people. 
God's book given to God's people. God gives His book to the church so we can know Him personally. Obviously, any healthy relationship requires communication. Any relationship involves communication. The Bible is God's personal communication to us. Uh, The Christian philosopher Cornelius Van Til said, the Bible is God's love letter to His bride, to the church. He said, I've never met Jesus personally, but He has written me a letter so that I might know Him. Augustine said the Bible is letters from home. What a beautiful way to think about the Bible. Our home is ultimately in God. And God has given us His Word to lead us into Himself. Into knowledge of Him. Into a relationship with Him. Indeed, so that we might dwell in Him even as He dwells in us. When we abide in the Word, God Himself abides in us and we abide in God. We can only know God in and through His self-revelation. And God has indeed revealed Himself. He has revealed Himself in what He has made. But the natural revelation, as this is sometimes called, the natural revelation of God through the created order is insufficient. It was insufficient even before man fell into sin. And that's why God was already speaking to Adam in the Garden of Eden. But especially after the fall, we need God's special revelation, His spoken and written Word if we are to know Him as we should. If we want to know God's will, if we want to know His salvation, if we want to properly interpret the world around us, we must have His spoken Word so we can know God, so we can use it as as spectacles, as John Calvin said, or glasses through which we look at the world around us so we can see things truly. When a passage of Scripture is read, And then we hear the Word of the Lord. What do we mean by that declaration? What are we saying about the Bible when we say this is the Word of the Lord? Well, we mean just what we say. The Bible is the Word of the Lord. It is the Word of God. The words of the Bible are the very words of God Himself. God continues to speak to us through what He has spoken. When the Bible is read, God is talking to us. You hear a human voice, but God Himself is the speaker. And God obviously has quite a bit to say. God is chatty, it seems. God has given us a book, or really a library of books, written over the span of several millennia. A rather large book, if I do say so myself. God is obviously a talkative God. He's a God who speaks and writes. He's not just a God who exists. He's a God who communicates. He has spoken to us in words we can understand. When we say the Bible is the Word of God, and we say, okay, what does that mean? What does it mean to say the Bible is the Word of God? There are really two ways I think we can approach it. We can look at what the Bible says about itself, or we can look at what Jesus says about the Bible. Jesus, after all, uh, is God in the flesh. He rose from the dead. He's worth listening to. So we can look at what the Bible says about itself or we can look at what Jesus says about the Bible. Either way, we're going to learn what we need to know about Scripture. But obviously there are some some, some problems or at least some complications that come with saying that the Bible is God's Word. Some say, how can the Bible be the Word of God when we know it was written by men? How can it be the Word of God when it was written by men? Well, uh, we read 2 Timothy 3 this morning in chapter 3, verse 16. 
There the Apostle says the Bible was inspired by God. See, the Bible's not just inspiring. It is inspired. It doesn't just inspire you with its lofty thoughts and noble ideals. It is inspired. This is talking about the origin of the Bible. Not just the effect that it has on us, but the origin of Scripture. It is inspired by God. Or really, a better better way to translate the the language there would be to say it is God-breathed. But because in the Greek as in the Hebrew, the word for spirit is the same as the word for breath, you could really say Scripture is God-spirit. God the Spirit spoke by the prophets and the apostles. So what they wrote, God wrote. Uh, The Word of God is carried along by the breath of God, the Holy Spirit. That's the picture we get in 2 Timothy 3. God wrote His Word through men, using them as His instruments. And so what Scripture says, God says. And you see this again and again in Scripture. In fact, we we saw it in the other passage we read this morning, 2 Peter chapter 1. The prophets spoke as they were carried along or moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, how did God inspire Scripture? Well, again, what, what exactly does this mean? Well, it seems at times God simply dictated His Word to a prophet. Uh, there are even places in Scripture where God speaks in the first person. But much of Scripture was given by what could be called organic inspiration, where the Spirit did not suppress the personality or the experiences, or the writing ability or writing style of the human author, but rather work through all of those features of the human author to produce a text that is at once fully human and fully divine. And of course, there's an analogy to this in the Incarnation. Jesus Himself. Jesus is the Word made flesh. Jesus is fully human and fully divine. And he lived as the God-man without sin. In the same way, Scripture is both human and divine. It's a divine human book and is without error. Psalm 12.6 says God's Word is flawless. We know God cannot lie or err or mislead or be misled. And so God's Word must be perfect. Inspiration means whatever diversity we find in Scripture, and there is quite a lot of diversity in Scripture, diverse styles, uh, diverse perspectives. Nevertheless, the Bible as a whole is fully consistent with itself. Every part of Scripture is ultimately in harmony with every other part of Scripture. Just as a musician could use his same breath to play a trumpet and to play a flute, and make different sounds with that same breath. So the breath of God inspired different human authors to produce different sounds, as it were, but they all blend together perfectly in Scripture. Because Scripture is inspired, it is sufficient. It is a complete book. It is a perfect and finished revelation. And that's why Paul can say in 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Word of God equips the man of God for every good work. Now, that doesn't mean the Bible tells us everything that we need to know, as if we didn't need to learn from other sources. The Bible's not going to tell you everything you need to know about plumbing or how to play the piano. But the Bible does give us a framework for understanding the whole world and everything in it. Scripture's like the sun. And just as we see everything in the light that the sun provides, so we're to see everything in the light that Scripture 
provides. And again, this is why Van Til said the Bible is authoritative on everything of which it speaks, and it speaks of everything. The Bible is authoritative for all of life. What I think Paul is saying there in 2 Timothy 3 is this. Everything you need for the Christian life is found in the Word of God. God has given His Word to completely furnish you to serve Him in every area. Now certainly there are other implications that flow out of Scripture's inspiration. I've already hinted at this and suggested this. But because Scripture is inspired, it is inerrant and infallible. Those are words the church has traditionally used to describe the Scripture. Everything in Scripture is absolutely true. It has no errors of fact. So everything the Bible says about everything is reliable. Whenever the Bible says things that would bear upon matters of history or science, even there, it is without error. It is always true and reliable. If it is God's Word, how could it be otherwise? We've already touched on this too, but because Scripture is inspired, the Word of God is absolutely authoritative. The authority of the Bible is equal to the authority of God Himself. Whatever authority God Himself has, that same authority belongs to God's Word. It's like we would say parents have authority. And so if a parent tells a child, go clean your room, the word of the parent has authority because it's a word spoken by the parent. The word belongs to the parent and shares in the parent's authority. And so it is with Scripture. Scripture shares God's authority. And so, of course, this means to disregard Scripture or to seek to correct Scripture or to put yourself in, in a place where you can pick and choose amongst different Scriptures is really to put yourself above God himself is to put yourself in God's place. See, we need to understand this issue of Scripture's authority has been tested and challenged from almost the very beginning. Whenever Satan attacks, where does he attack? He always attacks God's Word. He will do anything to get us to doubt God's Word. Uh, to, to not believe God's Word. To think that we can sit in judgment on God's Word. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, and the satanic serpent came to them, his question was, has God really said? And then they decided they could sit in judgment on God's Word and decide for themselves. And that's the same problem we have today. This is where we go wrong today as well. Instead of taking God at His Word, we judge His Word. And all our problems stem from this, from setting up some other final standard Besides God's Word, setting up some final standard other than the Word of God. It may be our reason that serves as a standard. It may be our feelings or our emotions. That's certainly very common today. It may be science or historical study or whatever. There's some other standard that becomes ultimate. And that's what derails us. This is not just what the Word of God says about itself. This is also the view of the Bible Jesus Himself had. Jesus viewed the Bible as inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, sufficient. Um, think about, let me just give you some examples of this. You know, what the Bible says about itself is matched by what Jesus says about the Bible. And what the Bible says about itself, we see it play out in how Jesus uses the Bible. So Jesus clearly believed that the Scriptures were inspired by God. In Matthew chapter 22, just to give you one example of this, Jesus appeals to Psalm 110 to make his case against the Pharisees. He's making an argument against the Pharisees. I won't go into the details here. 
But he does so by quoting a saying of David in Psalm 110. But he introduces the quotation from Psalm 110 this way. He says, David speaking by the Spirit. And then he gives the quotation. That is the biblical doctrine of inspiration. It's the human author speaking as moved by the Holy Spirit. It's not David speaking from his own experience, nor is it the Holy Spirit writing it in the sky apart from a human instrument. No, it's David, the human author, speaking by the Spirit. There's the divine author. That's the doctrine of inspiration. Now, it's really interesting if you look at the Gospels. Um, Jesus, of course, is the Word of God incarnate. He is the Son of God incarnate. And so every word he spoke was the Word of God in that sense. But it's still amazing how often Jesus appealed to the Scriptures. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, just like Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan, and and the issue in Satan's tempting of Adam and Eve was the Word of God, and when Satan tempted Jesus, the issue was the Word of God. Three times Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, and each time Jesus responded by saying, it is written... And he quoted from the book of Deuteronomy. That is how Jesus fought against Satan with Scripture, by appealing to what is written in the Word of God. When he's got to fight the Pharisees, he does the same thing. He appeals to Scripture. He fights against the Pharisees and their misunderstandings with Scripture. Every debate he has with the Pharisees, he appeals to Scripture and he exegetes Scripture. And he always assumes that Scripture is clear. The Pharisees got it wrong, not because Scripture is somehow a garbled message. He always says, why don't you understand this? Or if only you understood Moses, you would believe me. Again and again, we see this. He never appeals to any other source or standard. He always appeals to Scripture and to Scripture alone. In fact, he often uses Scripture to correct their tradition. And so it's clear, Jesus always treated the Bible as fully authoritative and trustworthy, and we should as well. Jesus' view of the Bible should be our view of the Bible. In John chapter 10, Jesus is in another exchange with the Pharisees, and uh, he uses Psalm 82 to make his argument against the Pharisees. Again, I'm not going to get into the details of the argument itself, but when he brings his argument together, he says the Scripture cannot be broken. The Scripture cannot be broken. Jesus viewed the Bible as the unbreakable Word of God. Oh sure, we might misunderstand it. We might misinterpret it because we are broken, sinful people. But Scripture is unbreakable. It is truthful. It is coherent. It's self-consistent. It tells one story from beginning to end. It gives us one theology from beginning to end. It all fits together perfectly. It perfectly communicates God's truth to us. Now, all of this was also the view of the Bible believed and taught by the Reformers. Because what we need to understand is the Reformers had to apply this teaching on Scripture to the issues of their day. See, the medieval church had elevated unwritten tradition so that it stood alongside Scripture as an equal authority. So, really, for the medieval Roman church, there were two sources of special revelation. There was Scripture, and then right alongside it, tradition. That was one claim the medieval church made. Another claim that the medieval church made is that the Pope, that is the bishop of the church at Rome, could interpret Scripture infallibly. 
And so really, functionally speaking, the Pope himself became the final judge of all truth. So you had these two claims. Tradition is on par with Scripture, and the Pope is the infallible interpreter of Scripture. The Reformers rejected both of those claims. And we'll talk about this a little bit this morning. We'll talk about it a little bit more next time. We need to understand the Reformers were not opposed to all tradition. Indeed, they cherished church tradition. All you have to do is pick up a copy of John Calvin's Institutes. You can talk to the guys who have been in the Institutes group with me uh, for a couple years now. They've certainly seen this. Flip through the index, and you will see not only hundreds if not thousands of scriptures, passages of scripture that are quoted by Calvin, in the Institutes, but you will see hundreds if not thousands of quotations from other traditional Christian sources. Indeed, there was no one in the 16th century who knew the church fathers better than John Calvin. He was the patristic expert of the 16th century. He was not opposed to tradition. He cherished tradition. This is how all the Reformers were. They, in fact, they knew it was impossible to read the Bible without tradition. After all, you cannot escape where you are or where you came from. You can't get outside of tradition any more than you can avoid having a belly button. We all come from somewhere. You have to start somewhere. Nobody is an altogether blank slate. And so the Reformers embraced the tradition of the church. They embraced the church fathers. They embraced, in particular, the early Christian creeds. The Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed especially served for the Reformers as boundary markers of the Orthodox faith. And so the Reformers treasured tradition, but they also knew that tradition could be corrupted. And that's easy enough to see in the Gospels. Most of the time when the Bible speaks of tradition, it speaks of tradition positively. But there are certainly places where you see tradition having been corrupted. One example of this is in Matthew chapter 15. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, you transgress God's commandment for the sake of your tradition. That is, the Pharisees had certain traditions in place that contradicted the Word of God and they held to their traditions rather than obeying the Scripture, the commandment of God. And the Reformers saw the same thing going on in the medieval Roman church with its uh, relics and with its prayers to dead saints and with its bowing before images and a host of other practices and beliefs that had no basis in Scripture, the Reformer said, you have corrupted the tradition. And the Reformers insisted that tradition submit to and be sifted by Scripture. The Reformers also rejected the papacy because they saw it as a novelty. They did not see it as something uh, traditional. They did not think that the papacy could be traced back to the early church and it did not have any basis in Scripture and it did not solve any of the problems the church was facing. See, the Roman church claimed that the popes were all successors to Peter and that Peter had been given universal jurisdiction over the church and so his successors held that same universal jurisdiction over the whole church. But the reformers said, no, there is no office of universal bishop. There was certainly no office of universal bishop in the early church. In other words, the, the reformer said, we are rejecting your version of the papacy for the sake of tradition. It's not traditional. It's not old or ancient enough. The reformers insisted that Christ alone has universal authority over the church. Christ alone is the head of the church. And they pointed to things like this. Gregory the Great 
Okay, Gregory the Great in the year 590. Gregory the Great was the bishop of the church at Rome. And in the year 590, he wrote, whoever calls himself universal bishop or even desires that title by his pride becomes Antichrist. When the reformers called the Pope the Antichrist, I don't really think that's the correct term of, of, of the word Antichrist from Scripture, but when the reformers called the Pope the Antichrist, they were just being traditional. They were doing something very traditional, right in line with Gregory the Great, Bishop of Rome, the way he spoke in the year 590. Now, the Reformers made, of course, a lot of other arguments. I can't go into all of them here. We'll even cover all of them next week. But there are several things here that I do think we need to consider. The Reformers looked back to the early church and said the model of government we see in the church is based on councils, not having one man who can speak infallibly for the whole. And so they pointed to the first council that was called after Pentecost. It was called in Jerusalem. It's known as the Jerusalem Council. You can read about it in Acts 15. And Peter is present as one of the apostles, but it's actually James who presides. And it's James who issues the decree. There is no hint at all that Peter has some kind of universal jurisdiction over all Christians in that passage. In the first council called after all of the apostles were dead and gone, the Council of Nicaea in the year 325, the bishop of the Church of Rome was not even present. Now I want you to think about this. This is Christians calling what will turn out to be the most important council in the history of the church, a council to decide the identity of Christ. Is Christ divine? Is he God in human flesh? Or is he just the greatest of God's creatures? This is the great controversy in the early church. Now if Christians in the year 325 believed that there was a bishop with universal authority and with powers of infallibility, you can bet they would have insisted on his presence in the council. But he wasn't even there. Oh, he sent a few delegates to be there, certainly, and he approved of all of the proceedings after it was all done. But he wasn't there. He certainly wasn't exercising any kind of universal authority. And he certainly was not called upon to speak infallibly to resolve the whole thing for the entire church. And in fact, the early church called councils to settle theological issues again and again. And these issues in the councils were settled by consensus. Rather than having resolutions decreed by a single infallible pope, the early church met in councils, it used what, what could be called, what was what historically is called a conciliar model. Not the papal model, a conciliar model. This is what historian Brian Tierney says, and he is, a, 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 I'm sure you don't know the name, but he's the best of the best when it comes to these kinds of matters. This is what he says about the papacy and infallibility. He says, there is no convincing evidence that papal infallibility formed any part of the theological or canonical tradition of the church before the 13th century. doesn't mean there might, you couldn't find somebody who might have claimed that before the 13th century, but there was certainly no consensus, no widespread belief in papal infallibility before the 13th century. Why did the Reformers reject papal infallibility? Because they saw it as a novelty, a departure from the historic Christian church as well as a departure from Scripture. Indeed, the whole idea that the apostles have successors uh, is itself problematic. 
See, who are the apostles in the New Testament? Apostles are eyewitnesses to the, the earthly ministry of Jesus and to His resurrection. Okay, that's one of the criteria of being an apostle. You have to have seen the risen Christ with your own, eye, with your own eyes. There are no direct successors to the apostles. It's very interesting the way apostleship is spoken of in the New Testament. Paul calls the apostles the foundation on which the church is built in Ephesians 2. Christ Jesus Himself is the chief cornerstone, and then the apostles are the other foundation stones. The apostles were part of that founding generation in history. They played a unique once and for all role in laying the foundation upon which the church would be built. But you don't keep laying a new foundation in each generation. You lay a foundation once and for all and then build upon it. That, that's how the metaphor works. And that's what we have. There are no direct successors to the apostles. They're the foundation. They're beneath us, not with us now in the church. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 calls himself the last of the apostles. The only reason Paul could become an apostle is because the risen Christ appeared to him in glory on the road to Damascus. But Paul says... I was the last of the apostles. And he says, I was born out of due season. I became an apostle at a, at a weird time because I was the last one chosen to be an apostle, the last one to have a vision of the risen Christ until the last day when we all get to see the risen Christ. The last of the apostles, no successors. In fact, it's interesting when Judas obviously apostatizes and then hangs himself, he needs to be replaced so there can be 12 foundation stones in the beginning. And so you look at the beginning of the book of Acts and Judas is replaced. They draw lots to, to determine who will take Judas' place in the circle of the apostolate. But when James dies later in the book of Acts, no replacement is chosen. There is no successor. There are no more apostles in the church today. No more spokesmen who can speak God's inspired, revealed, infallible truth to us. Instead, what we have is the finished revelation here in God's Word. The apostles have no successors. Now I need to say a few things. You know, this, this is unusual for us to talk so much about another church's tradition as we've done this morning. But again, this is important history for us to understand. In rejecting the claims of the papacy, the reformers did not say that there were no true Christians in the Roman Catholic Church. They were very clear about that. Then and now, there are many true and faithful believers in the Roman Catholic Church. That's not what, it's, what is at issue here. What is at issue are the specific claims that the papacy makes for itself. The reality is then as now, Protestant Christians, Reformed Christians, have a great deal in common with Roman Catholics, especially in the Apostles and Nicene Creed. But isn't it interesting that in these creedal summaries of the Christian faith, nothing is said about the Pope or about papal infallibility? We disagree over these things. And so Protestants still have something to protest. Well, what exactly did the Reformers mean by that slogan, Sola Scriptura? I think now we're in a good position to understand. What does Sola Scriptura actually mean? They did not mean that the Bible is our only revelation from God. God also reveals Himself through, through the creation, through the things He has made. They, they did not mean that the Bible is our only authority. In fact, the Bible itself recognizes and authorizes other authorities, such as the civil magistrate. Read Romans 13. 
Uh, we're to obey the civil magistrate. The, the Bible re- recognizes civil rulers have authority. Parents are recognized as authority. Pastors and elders are recognized as authorities by Scripture. There are other authorities. There are other te- there are teachers in the church who are set up as authorities. That's very clear. In fact, it's really interesting, right before that passage we read in 2 Timothy, which is what is really the classic sola scriptura text in 2 Timothy, right before you get to, to the part that we read, Paul says that Timothy learned the Scripture not in isolation, but from his mother and his grandmother, who you can bet were authoritative teachers for him. So whatever sola scriptura means, it does not mean the church apart from, it does not mean the the, the Scripture apart from the church. It means the Scripture in the context of the church. So what then does sola scriptura mean? Well, the Reformers meant this by sola scriptura. Two basic things. The Bible is our ultimate authority and it is our only infallible authority. Our ultimate authority and our only infallible authority. And so, how did the Reformers work this out? Well, something like this. Sola Scriptura stood against Rome on one side, which made the papacy equal to Scripture in authority and infallibility. But they also stood against the Anabaptists of their day on the other side. This was another group that came out of the Reformation. The Anabaptists held to a view that you could call solo scriptura because they really did believe in a me and my Bible kind of approach. They, they claimed they did not need teachers and they did not need preachers and they did not need ancient creeds or tradition to help them understand the Bible. They could figure it out for themselves. Indeed, in some cases, Anabaptists even claimed to have their own private revelations from God that they put on par with Scripture. So you could say Anabaptists held to the popehood of all believers. Every man gets to decide for himself what Scripture says, and there's no real accountability beyond the individual. And the Reformers said no to that as well. So sola scriptura was really a two-edged sword, cutting against Rome's elevation of the papacy and the Anabaptist elevation of the individual. The Reformers said, yes, you need teachers, and Christ has given His church teachers to help you understand the Bible. And yes, there are other authority figures besides Scripture. They're real. Again, parents, magistrates, so forth. They're real authority figures, but they're subordinate. And so you have to test them all. And you have to test tradition by Scripture. And so the Reformer said, the Bible is the Word of God. And so the Bible is always the supreme judge and the final court of appeal in any matter. The Bible always gets the last word. Because the Bible alone is without error. Other authorities are fallible. Uh, parents can make mistakes. Pastors can make mistakes. Magistrates can make mistakes. They have authority, but they're fallible authorities. God speaking in His Word is not fallible. God speaking in His Word is always true, always reliable, never misleads us, never deceives us, always guides us into the truth. Now that's what the Reformers had to deal with in their own day. What does Sola Scriptura mean for us today? And again, we'll talk about this more next week, but I just want to give you some thoughts here. There have certainly been a lot of challenges to biblical authority over the last 500 years. Challenges that the Reformers themselves really didn't have to face in their day. There have been challenges to the trustworthiness of the Bible based on the textual preservation of the Scriptures. People have said, how can you say you have the Word of God when the original manuscripts have been lost? It's only those original manuscripts that were inspired. They've all been lost. What do you do with the fact that all these copies that we have have variations in them? 
Does that mean we've lost the Word of God even if we ever had it? Well, no, we, we trust that God has providentially preserved His Word. And actually, when you look at the facts, you find that the Bible is the best preserved text from the ancient world by far. And if you look at the textual variations, and most of your English translations will recognize what they are in the margins, less than one word in a thousand differs in the various manuscripts. And no matter which one of those readings you take, there is no doctrinal issue at stake in which manuscript variation you go with. And so you can be fully confident that when you hold your Bible in your hand, you are holding the very Word of God. This is God's Word to you, written in a language you can understand. It's been, it's been preserved, it's been translated, but we can know we have the Word of God in our hand. There have been other challenges to the Bible, challenges based on history. So, for example, there, there will be whole civilizations the Bible talks about that archaeologists never discovered. And they'll say, well, this must not be true. And then guess what? They discover that civilization. And this kind of thing has happened again and again and again. So many examples that I wouldn't even know where to begin. But again and again, the Bible has been vindicated against its historical critics. Indeed, the more we learn about the ancient world, the more the trustworthiness of the Bible is confirmed. There have been challenges to the Bible based on science. And admittedly, it's not always possible to square the Bible or to harmonize the Bible with current scientific theories. But you know, there's also a saying, he who marries the science of today is a widow tomorrow. Much of what we think of as settled science is going to be overturned tomorrow. And much of what we call settled science is really not science at all. It's really hypothesis and conjecture and theory. And in some cases, it's even more philosophical than it is scientific. It's not really the result of hard empirical investigation. It's not hard science in that sense. It's more speculative and philosophical than anything. And so we should be very slow to change our interpretation of the Bible to fit with the science of the dead. Sometimes we may have to live with unanswered questions, admitting we don't fully know how to reconcile the Bible or what the Bible seems to say with what scientists are saying. And that's okay. We don't have to have all the answers because we know God does. A lot of challenges to biblical authority. But I'll tell you this, the biggest challenge to biblical authority in our day is really based on its content. How its content rankles modern sensibilities. I'm thinking here especially of its moral content. People simply do not like what the Bible says. And where they especially do not like what the Bible says is what it has to teach on men and women and marriage and sex. And so people in our culture will reject the Bible out of hand because they don't like its teaching in this area. And, and we need to, as a response to that, we need to do all we can to show what the Bible teaches in these areas when it's properly understood is really good. And it's true and it's beautiful and it actually leads to greater happiness when you follow God's teaching in these areas because what Scripture teaches fits with the way we were designed to live. But at the end of the day, sola scriptura means we take our stand on the truth of God's Word and we let the chips fall where they may. We may have to stand against the culture. We may fall out of favor with the culture because our views are not popular. But it's the Word of God. We have to let the Word of God challenge and correct our views 
We have to let God's Word reign supreme in our lives. And if we don't let God's Word challenge us, if we don't let God's Word correct us, then really we have put ourselves in the place of God and we have put our own Word in the place of His. And really at that point, we're just making up a religion. We might still call it Christianity, but we're just making up a religion of our own. It's a man-made religion at that point. No, we must go to Scripture and learn from Scripture and submit to Scripture because Scripture is the one and only place where the voice of God may be heard. Scripture is the one place where God speaks to us. You want to hear what God has to say to you? Pick up and read. See, at the end of the day, whatever our culture says, however our culture might be contradicting the Scripture, whether on sexual issues or or gender issues or any other issues, we've got to do what Martin Luther did when he was put on trial at Burns. And when Martin Luther was put on trial, really the issue rapidly became the authority of Scripture. And what did Luther do? He said, here I stand. He said, unless I am convinced by Scripture and reason, I cannot recount. He said, popes and councils may err. And we should add, Cultures and celebrities and politicians can err too. But Luther said God's Word does not err. And so he said, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that You would help us to take our stand on Your Word. Only Your Word can liberate us from being slaves to our culture and to all its blind spots and follies. Only Your Word can give us a new and true way of seeing and living in the world. And so speak to us through Your Word. Help us to cling to Your Word at all costs. For it is our very life. You know, man does not live by bread alone, bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from Your mouth. So be it. Amen. In Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we are bold to come before You with our prayers and petitions on behalf of Your church and the world because we have a great High Priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Grant us Your mercy and gracious help in our time of need and show Yourself faithful to Your people as You hear our prayers. Father, we pray for the peace and purity of Your holy Catholic Church that she would be found faithful at the coming of her Lord. Establish the proper preaching of Your Word, the faithful administration of the sacraments, and rigorous discipleship and discipline. Purge Your church of all heresy and error, and grant us courage and humility to work toward the unity that Jesus died to accomplish. Almighty God, we confess that You are the Judge of the earth who has been given inheritance of all the nations. O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold Your peace or be still. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have lifted up their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. And so, Lord, we ask that you would fill the faces of, with shame of those who persecute your people, that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace, that they may know that you alone are the Most High over all the earth. Lord, we pray that Your peace would reign where there is war, especially in places like Syria and Iraq. We ask You to strengthen Your church in the face of affliction. Defend our persecuted brothers and sisters in places like North Korea, Cuba, India, Nigeria, Libya, and Iran. And provide for those who have been displaced by persecution. Lord, we pray for Your blessings upon CREC churches in the U.S. and around the world 
especially the Mitaka Evangelical Church in Japan, the churches of the Joint Eastern European Project, mission works in Myanmar, the work of the Atwoods in Albania, missionaries like the Cordells in Ukraine, the Slavic Reformation Society, and especially their church planting in Central Asia. Asia. And we lift up to you the Hare family in Cameroon and Pastor Nazareth and his work in Tanzania. Also, Lord, continue to bless and prosper Peru Mission and, and provide for the needs of the missionaries that serve with them. Father, we pray for those who lead our own nation, especially our new president, Trump, and his administration. Anoint them with the gifts of your spirit, that they would rule in righteousness and justice. Forgive us of when we have called evil good and good evil, and grant us repentance to submit ourselves to you and your word. Deliver us from the, the rule of ungodly men, and grant that rebellious kings and magistrates would kiss the sun, lest they perish in the way. We pray against those who shed innocent blood, who prey on the weak and the vulnerable, and subvert your design for, for marriage and human sexuality. At, we ask you, Lord, to rescue the oppressed and the needy, and deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Father, you are the great shepherd and overseer of our souls. We pray that you would bless with your tender mercies those of our family and friends in our congregation here who are sick or afflicted or undergoing various trials. We lift up to you Neil's employee, Jean, and ask for your blessing upon Michelle Stevenson, Gilbert Douglas, Chris Phillips' mom, the Moat's nephew, Logan, the Harrison family, especially Miles, for Rachel Winstead and Kia Shooku, for Wallace Jordan, Lindsay Scogan, Ashley Hamblin, Bethany Laughlin, Finley Evans' friend, Sarah Claudia Tillman, the Currington's, Brian Knight, and all battling cancer, especially Rhonda Adair, Pastor Jonathan Dean, Nick's co-worker Beverly, Sylvia Douglas, Dr. Rob Maddox, Beth Booth, Sally Ann, Eric's employee Susan, Brenda Jordan, Gloria Jones, Tim's sister Tammy, Gregory Morris, Sarah Thomas, and Riley Granberry. Have mercy on all of these and their afflictions. And Lord, bless those who desire to have children with children and strengthen and sustain all expectant moms. Comfort those to whom death draws near and give them faith to persevere to the end. Grant the hope of the risen Christ to all who grieve the loss of a loved one this day. Lord, teach us to hate our sin and strengthen us by your Spirit so that we may put to death the deeds of the flesh and put on Christ. Stir up and grant repentance to all who have grown comfortable in sin and worldliness. And Lord, all these things and whatever else you see that we need, grant us, O Father, for the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son, who died and rose again and now lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, age after age. And now hear us as we pray together, as our Savior has taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.